Today is what we call State of the Church Sunday. Once a year, we come together and look at emphases for the coming year. And I want to invite you to open up your Bible and get ready for a flying trip. For those of you that, are, that won the fourth grade uh, sword drill, Bible drill, when you were a kid, you can probably keep up. Others of you may want to just write some of the passages down as we go through them. But start at 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's begin there and we'll, and we'll go from there. This year, our theme is Windows to the World. Some of you will remember that last year, um, we talked about exchanging mirrors for windows. That was a different kind of a window. That was a window where we looked out into the world. The Lord laid on my heart that we had come to a point in many ways in our life as a church family where we were looking at ourselves in the mirror 99% of the time. And all we cared about was what was going on inside the four walls of this building and maybe the beacon and on our property. We were concerned about what was going on with us and we had forgotten to look out into a lost world. This year, we turned the window around. Now, it's about what kind of window are we to the world so that they can look at us, see through us, and be able to see Christ in us. So if you, inside your uh, bulletin, if you see the little yellow piece of paper that's got our prayer uh, guide on it, on the back side, since we don't have just one passage of Scripture, I use the back side to give you, on the left side, the four main things we're going to be talking about over the next 15 to 20 minutes about how we become windows to the world. And then on the right side, in a few minutes, I'll be sharing with you some of the major themes and emphases for 2017. What does the world see when they see me? What do people see when they see you at work? Whom do they see when they see you at work, at the grocery store, at Denny's, sitting on the bench while your child is involved in a sports event or a musical event like we were this past week? What do people see when they see us here in Waterloo, Illinois, here in Monroe County? What do they see when they see the people of First Baptist Church? What kind of people are we and whom do they see and whom should they see? I think the answer to that question is very clear. We are sent here, we are placed here so that the world might see Jesus Christ living in us. We need to be living, walking models. The first name for the church slapped on by pagans who were making fun of us was little Christs, Christianos, little Christs, because they looked so much like their master. Do we? And if not, how do we get there? How do we look like Christ? This is going to be a big theme for us this year, talking about how do we become windows for people to see the truth of who Jesus is and how he feels about the one that is looking through the window toward us. Who is Jesus to them? In order for us to do that, I have lined out four things that I feel like we need to do. Four things that we need to examine as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, to determine whether or not the world will be able to see Jesus Christ in us. And so if you will give me about 20 minutes, I'm going to walk through those, we're going to worship some more, and I'm going to come back and talk about our emphases for the coming year. The first thing we have to do 
is we have to make sure that our house is in order. Make sure that our house is in order. Before you ever open the curtains of your big picture window of your soul, you better make sure what's on the inside is for real. And that is to make sure of your salvation. Now, let me just tell you right now, I am not trying in any means to cast anyone into doubt about their salvation. My goal is not to convince anyone that they are lost. I have found by my own experience, the people who are in the most need of being concerned about their salvation are the ones that are not worried about their salvation. The ones who go, oh, I'm fine, I'm good. God and I, we're just like this, man, we're just like this. Whenever I need him, I call him whenever he needs me. I guess he'll call on me, but he hasn't needed me so far. But if he ever does, I'm here for him. You know, I don't bother him, he doesn't bother me. I go through my life, he goes through his life, and we just, whenever I need him, I just, you know, I'm fine, I'm good. I get real nervous about people like that. Most of us, I think, are constantly, not that we doubt whether we're Christians, but we doubt whether we're living as Christians. Are we really living a Christ-like life? But, but, but one of the things that we realize in Scripture, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, is that again and again and again and again, especially in the letters of the New Testament, is this constant plea for us to make certain of where we are. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter says, therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. Peter has just been listing qualities in a Christian's life. If you've got your Bible over there, you'll notice up there, beginning at verse, at verse, say verse 5, he's talking about your faith with goodness, goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, endurance, and on and on and on. These Christian qualities that we need to have in our lives. And he says, if you see these things in your life, if they're good, if they're in you, if they're increasing, that will help you to be fruitful as a believer. So be sure, he says in verse 10, make every effort to confirm your calling and your election because if you do these things, you will never stumble. So how do we confirm? We look at our lives and how our lives are going. What qualities are growing in our lives? What qualities are shrinking in our lives? What, how do we tend to knee-jerk react when things happen in our lives with a godly response or with an ungodly response if we are going to be windows to the world so that they can see christ in us we have to make sure that christ is really in us that we're not just putting on a show that we're not a sham in romans chapter 8 paul adds his words to this in romans chapter 8 verse 16 this is what he says he says the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So not only do we confirm our salvation by examining the qualities of our lives, we also have the witness of the Holy Spirit living in us. I've told you several times in various ways about the time that I went to my mom and said, I'm not sure I'm really a Christian. She said, why are you worried? I said, because I did something that I'm, not, I'm ashamed of, and I did something that, that I don't think is right. She said, well, what made you think it wasn't right? I said, well, I don't know. I guess the Holy Spirit just told me. She said, okay, that's the answer to that question. Now get back to work. If you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't feel bad about what you did. The Holy Spirit is there encouraging us, convicting us, comforting us, challenging us to move forward. We have to make sure that our lives are such that people would want and be able to see Christ in us because we have a true relationship with him. And if that weren't enough, let me just throw in one word from the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. He says this, here's how you know. Here's how you know for sure. We know 
he says, that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. The one who does not love remains in death. So John adds his words to the words of Peter and the words of Paul to say, you want to make sure you're a believer? Ask yourself, how do I feel about other Christians? I'll talk a little bit later about the importance of being involved in relationships with other Christians and people who say to me, well, I can be a Christian and still just be on my own. And it always bothers me. It always concerns me because I've watched too many times when that was not the case. But we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But for now, let's just let it be said that the way we feel, the way we love our brothers and sisters in Christ speaks volumes about our relationship with our Father. So the first thing you have to do, if you want the world to look through the window of your soul and see the beautiful radiance of Christ, we've got to make absolutely sure. And I had to lay this down as the first foundation. I hope and pray that the vast majority of us in this room today can say, you know what, Pastor, I'm there. I've got you. I'm right there. That's fine. I pray that be so. But there may be some in the room that go, well, I'm doing my best to be a Christian. Isn't that good enough? No, it's not good enough. Because it's not about how much we try. It's about how much we release how much we surrender to him and allow him to be transforming us and making us. But that's the first step. The second step, once you're sure that the content inside your living room is the real deal, so people can look through the window and see something that's real and not fake, then you need to make sure that the windows are clean. You need to make sure that you keep your windows clean so that people look through them. They're not so caught up by the dirt on the window they can't see what's inside. You remember the old joke about the guy that fussed because the next door neighbor, she didn't wash her clothes very well. You look at it, there was dirt all over her clothes. And next day he got up against, I can't believe, look how much dirt's on her clothes over there. She must not do a good job washing her clothes. And a few days later, he looked, he said, wow, she's doing a lot better job. Look how clean her clothes are now. I wonder what the change was. And his wife said, I washed the windows. It wasn't the clothes that were dirty. It was the window that was dirty. And when people look into our lives and they're looking to see if Christ is true in us, they can't see him because of the dirt that we have on our windows. Beloved, we must make sure that we are living humbly, holy lives. And I put the word humbly in there for a very important reason because it's easy to become holier now. It's easy to become self-righteous. It's easy to become sanctimonious. It's easy to become pharisaical and hypocritical. We must be humbly walking in holiness with Christ. In Romans chapter 12, passage that we know very well, many of us, where Paul says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Holy means set apart for God's use. And you notice there are two parts that he puts in there. First of all, we surrender our bodies to holiness, which means we give our bodies and the very things that we do in these bodies as being of God's service, like a sacrifice on the altar. I can guarantee you that when you take that lamb and you, and you, you know, what's the word in, in English? Chinja. Um, uh, kill it, I guess something, and sacrifice it and put it on that altar, it's no good to you anymore. It's dead. It's God's now. You put that money in the offering plate. If you do it with, a, with the right heart, with a spiritual heart, you know that money is no longer mine. I have given it not to my church, I've given it to the Lord. And in the same way, Paul says we are to lay our lives on the altar, holy 
Not blameless holy, but set apart holy. And then he says, that happens by renewing your mind. You are going to get so sick of me. I know you're, some of you are already sick of me, but you're going to get so sick of me talking about God changes your mind, which then changes your heart, which then results in changing your hands. I just need to be more patient. I just need to be more loving. No, you need to know what changes the way you think about being patient, the way you think about being loving, the way you think about lust, the way you think about desire, the way you think about this and this and this. So that as God changes your mind by his word, that then changes your desires and your desires change your actions. You will hear this over and over until it, until it begins to sink into the DNA of who we are as a church. And you'll come to me and say, Pastor, I, I, I just can't seem to not, not be angry with the way my boss is treating me. How do I need to think differently? And I'll go, score one for the winning team. Now, what do I need to do? Now, what do I need to feel? What do I need to think? And as I think differently. We've got to make sure that we're keeping those things clean. And Paul says, then, you do that, that is a holy and acceptable offering to God. Peter jumps into this fray and talks in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. As the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Holy. You see, he's been talking about, if you notice, if you've got your Bibles open back in verse 14, he says, obedient children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who calls you is holy, now you be holy. This is holiness as being set apart from sinful patterns. Not just set apart to God, but set apart from old life, from your conduct that you would do. People begin to see a change in you. They begin to see a change in the way you act and the things that you do and the way that you behave. And they say, what's happened about you? What has changed about you? And you're able to help them see that it's what God is doing in you and through you through Jesus Christ. We must keep the windows of our houses clean. We must keep the windows of our lives clean. We must keep our lives unfettered, unshackled, unmarred by sin in our lives. Paul in Colossians chapter 3 says, if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above where the Messiah is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on, there it is again, set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. Holy means that we are set apart in how we think and what we seek and what our passions are all about. You see, one of the reasons that we are so ineffective today in the church at being a witness to a lost world is they hear what we say, but then they watch our lives, and we're no different than they are. And we'll get to that in just a minute. We'll talk about transparency, but, but all they go is, look, you, you say that Christ has changed your life, and yet you're the same person you were before. There's no difference in your life. You're just like everybody else. You lie, and you cheat, and you cuss, and you do this and that and the other, and, and you know, when you don't do this, that... Because there's nothing in us that shows that Christ is transforming us. We've not kept our windows clean. The pastor in Hebrews chapter 12 is talking to his church. And in verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews chapter 12, he gives what I, I need to make sure I put in here. Because he talks about how our holiness as believers is not just a vertical relationship. It is, it is impacted by our horizontal relationships and horizontal impacts the vertical. See, when we think of holiness, a lot of times we think about being obedient to God, which it is. 
And it's all about me and God. I want to be obedient to God. But it immediately is impacted by how I treat those around me. So listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. Say, okay, what's that? I don't, what are you talking about? All right, let's go back and read a little bit more slowly. Look at verse 14 again. Pursue peace with everyone. Is that vertical or horizontal? That's horizontal. Pursue peace with everyone. And pursue holiness without which you will not see the Lord. So you see the two are dependent on each other. You've got to pursue peace and holiness. And then, and then in verse 15, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God, okay, God's undeserved love. Make sure you don't fall short of that, of God's grace and God's love, and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. So you see again, your relationship with God and his grace towards you then results in not being bitter toward those around you. Beloved, when they look in through the window of our lives to see who we are and who Christ is in us and through us, they're not just going to see how many Bible verses we can quote. They're going to see how do we treat the people around us? How do we act among, with those that we have interactions with? And that will speak to them much, much more than what we may believe is the more important, and maybe it is, which is our ongoing intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father because the two work together. So we must make sure that inside our house we have the real deal. We truly are born again and that Christ is the ruler and master of our lives. Then we need to make sure that the windows are clean so that there's no sin blocking people's view of Christ as they look at us. The third thing we need to do is make sure we pull the curtains open. Oftentimes, we live our Christian life behind curtains, behind closed doors. We go to work. We stay quiet. We don't do anything bad. We don't do anything good either. We just live out our lives. We go to school. We got in the community. We don't say a whole lot about anything. We just leave those curtains closed and nobody can see who we are on the inside. But we're taught in Scripture that if we're going to be a testimony, if we're going to let people look through the window of our lives and see Christ, we have to open the curtains so they can see us. Now, this is where things get a little bit dicey. This is where things get a little bit hard. We don't like doing this. We don't like doing this in here. We don't like doing it here at church. We don't like saying... We had a, one of our, uh, in our Sunday class this morning, someone shared a very, very intimate, painful prayer request. Nothing that was salacious or anything like that, just was very painful. And for them to be able to share that with us as a group and to pray for them as we grabbed hands around the table and prayed together was a tremendously powerful thing. And it's hard for us to do that. Well, I don't know what they're going to say about me. I don't know what's going to happen. My, you know what? If we are going to have windows that people can see through us to Christ, we have to practice here what that looks like so that when we get out into the world, people can see us for who we truly, truly are. That's why it's so important to keep those windows clean. Close the curtains, you don't have to see the dirty windows. But if you open the curtains or open the shutters, open the, so they can see in, you've got to make sure it's clean. So let me just give you some examples of that. First of all, we've got to make sure that we are open and transparent in what we believe about the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul, that famous line from Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. In other words, we must be open and transparent about what we believe about God. 
We should be unashamed to say to someone, I believe God could help you in that situation. I believe that Christ would love to help you and, 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 and walk with you through this situation. We need to not be ashamed of the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Whether it means we end up sharing with them the plan of salvation or whether we just encourage them to, to think spiritually about their situation. We must be transparent and not be afraid to open up the curtains of our lives and let them see where we are and how we find our trust in times of difficulty. Earlier when he wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, he says this, Philippians three twelve. not only should we be open and honest and transparent about what we believe about God, we have to be open and honest and transparent about what we feel about ourselves. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. You'll remember that Paul had been talking about knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And then he says, but I got to tell you, I'm not there yet. I'm still working on it. I've not achieved that yet. I'm still striving toward that. And we need to make sure that people who are not believers, because they don't understand what sanctification is all about, what spiritual growth is all about, what developing and maturing in Christ is all about. And they think once you become a Christian, it's a done deal. And you just, you know, look at me. I am brand new. I may look the same on the outside, but I am different on the inside. Well, we are different on the inside, but we're still being transformed. And Paul is very quick to say, look, you need to understand. Yes, I belong to Christ. I am pressing toward that goal, but I have not gotten there yet. And your lost friends think that you think that you've arrived. Now, they've seen you, and they know you hadn't arrived. But they think that you think you've arrived. And so we need to be open and transparent to those around us that we are still in progress, and we're trusting the one who is shaping us and molding us. In the book of Romans, Paul says in chapter 7, Romans 7, verses 22 and following, He doesn't just say, I'm honest about the path I'm on. I'm honest about how messed up I am. He says, beginning verse 22, in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? You see, Paul said, I am messed up. I mean, can I just say it that bluntly to you? Paul said, look, I am a wretched man because I'm constantly fighting between what I know I ought to do and what my body ends up doing. And it breaks my heart that I'm living this kind of life. Now, that's a pretty brave thing to say. But I think the the lost friends around us, people who don't know Christ, need to understand that we also struggle with making bad decisions. We also struggle with things that we know we shouldn't do or not doing things that we know we should do. And we should be open and transparent about that. We have a lot more in common with our lost friends than we have different from our lost friends. And we need to make sure that they see that. And then Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, finishes this particular thought when he talks in verses 15 and 16, 1 Peter 3, he says, Honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. And then here's the phrase that we know so well. Always be ready to give a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you, they, uh, so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. In other words, not only do we need to acknowledge what we believe about God, not only do we need to be acknowledge the fact that we are on a path, 
Not only we need to acknowledge that we're not there yet and we struggle with sin, we need to acknowledge that in all of that, we turn to Christ. We turn to God for help. We don't just rely on our own resources. We don't rely on our own abilities. We don't rely on our own righteousness to get us there. So Peter says, they're going to ask you, so what are you going to do about that? And our answer is, I'm going to go to God and see if he'll help, do what I can to see if he'll help me with this because I have really messed up. We must be transparent. And that leads me to the fourth thing, and then I'll be done with this part. Make sure your house is in order. You truly have a relationship with Christ. Make sure that your windows are clean. There's no sin blocking people's view of Christ. Make sure that you open the curtains and let them see you for who you really are. What you believe about God, the fact that you are still on a journey, the fact that you at times are heartbroken over your own sinfulness, but that through all of that, you rely on God. You rely on Christ. You rely on the Holy Spirit to guide you through those difficult times. Lastly, once you get those curtains open, make sure that your windows are facing the street. This kind of leads out from number three, but I did it for a reason. There are a lot of us who are very open and transparent here in church. We're very open with each other. We're willing to confess our sins to one another. We're willing to have people pray for us. We're willing to share and everything. But we have got to be proactively going and being where lost people are so that they will have to see us. It's not just we kind of, well, maybe just by some fluke of chance, I'll run across a lost person. No, we must, as believers, be about the business of going where people are so they can see us for who we are. We will never change the world. One of my major emphases in some of my post-grad work was Celtic, the Celtic church. And the Celts, and I'll just say this real quickly, the Celts were so amazingly different from the Roman church of its time. We're talking about the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th centuries. Early, early, early in the life of the church. The Romans should have been Southern Baptist. Their whole thing was, y'all come here to church and we'll tell you what you ought to do. We have a list of things. If you agree to these things, we'll baptize you and you'll be a Christian. You know what the Celts did? They said, can we come and live with you? And they would go into these vastly pagan communities and they would build little conclaves right in the middle of the village. And they'd begin to live right there. They would say, so I noticed when you went out in the field, you kind of put your head down for a minute. What were you doing? I was praying to my God. What were you praying? That he would give me a good harvest. I noticed that before you ate your meal, you, you stopped and you kind of mumbled some words. You know, we were asking God to bless the food. Well, tell me more about this God that you, well, come and walk with me for a while. And the Celts saw all of Northern England come to Christ merely by getting out and living in the midst of lost people. Never built a church building until Augustine came and said, you're doing this all wrong, you know. You need to be building churches and stuff. And All of a sudden, Christianity came to a streaking halt in Northern England. You see, if we are going to see a lost world come to Christ, if we're going to see a lost Waterloo come to Christ, we've got to be proactive about getting That's why that beacon is kind of like an arm with a fist sticking out of this building. You know, this is our main building, but out there is our, is our face to the community, looking for ways that we can interact in a proactive way with the community. Let me just give you three passages of Scripture, and then we're going to pray and we're going to worship some more. These, I'm going all the way back to Jesus, because Jesus is our model in this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. We, by God's grace and design, were almost given a piece of property contiguous with ours right out there on Market Street. I've told you before, when I first came, before y'all ever had my, I had my first conversation with your committee, I thought, well, we'll just run down to Waterloo and see this church. Drove by three times before I found it. 
And then when I saw it, I saw a sign with a dove on it. Now, where I come from, if you see a dove on the sign, that means it's Assemblies of God. Because they're all big Holy Spirit people. So I didn't even know, I mean, I didn't know that was your logo at the time. Now I understand it. But my point is, is that, is that God has gifted us with a way to be out more visible toward our community. Jesus says, you are a city set on a hill. But you must understand that your job, your role is to be light in darkness. One candle in a dark room, the darkness begins to dissipate. 185 candles in a dark room, and it's bright enough you can read the newspaper. 350, you probably could put them all together and make yourself a fried egg on it. I don't know, but we'll have to see about that. But the point is, we are light in darkness. A little further on in Luke chapter 5, Jesus talks about those who have need of a physician. He said those that are well don't need a physician. Those who are sick are the ones that need physicians. We are to be wounded healers in the midst of sickness. We live in a world that is sick in many, many ways. But we will not be agents of healing by standing on our church front lawns, wagging our fingers as people go out saying, you know, you're sick. You're just sick. That's what you are. You're just sick. No. Love or hate her, that's not the way Mother Teresa began to affect change in Calcutta. She affected change when she went into the slums and picked those people up with their maggot-eaten bodies and carried them back to her house of mercy and began to give love and care physically and spiritually to those people. Why do we still send Southern Baptist foreign missionaries? Why don't I just send money? Couldn't you do a lot more with a bunch of national evangelists better than sending just one American family? Of course you could. It costs $100,000 to get one family to the mission field. What could you do with that $100,000? A lot. I'll tell you what you couldn't do. You couldn't live out the gospel in the midst of a place where people don't know who Jesus is. People are still bum-fuzzled when you tell them that the number one role of a missionary is just go and live. Just go live. Live like a Christian. Let them see you. Be proactive. Walk in the market. Drink tea in the shops. Talk to people. Spend time with them. Let them see Christ in you. We are wounded healers in the midst of a sick world. And then Paul adds his words in Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15, where he says, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars. Nor say, Pastor, you already been there, light in the dark. No, 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 no. Stars don't give any light. The moon gives light. What do stars do? Tell me. Guidance. For millennia, people have identified the North Star. People in the Southern Hemisphere understand the Southern Cross. For thousands of years, the stars have guided people when they were lost. And that is what we must be doing. Not only should we be lights in a dark world, not only should we be healers in a sick world, we must be silent guides in a lost world. We, beloved, must be windows to a lost world. Every one of us, every one of us must be a window so that when people see us, they, they see through us and they see Christ. So with that in mind, I want us to sing for a little while. Stretch your legs a little bit. We're going to come back and I'm going to take about 15 minutes and talk to you about the emphases that we have for this year and years ahead. And then we'll be ready to take supper and then go have lunch together. All right? Let's sing together.